been a busy week. I've been playing a bunch of gigs. I played a gig in Brighton, had a great gig there, went to Norwich, and then played a festival outside of Oxford. And right before I went on stage there, I remember going over to Bob Harris's house, and we recorded something for his show. I'm not sure when that will air, but I'll let you know when it comes out. And the next day, went up to Newcastle, or Gateshead, actually. It was just the River Tyne that separates the two of them. And that's the very first place I ever played over on this side of the Atlantic, so it's always a special gig for me, is at the Summertime Festival. And I got to play on the outdoor stage. There was a few thousand people out there, and it was raining, and it was raining pretty hard, and everybody stayed, and they sang along with me, and it was just beautiful and inspiring in every way. It was really nice. There's just so many people that I've gotten to know and become friends with there, and it felt good getting to play for them. But then the next day I came down to Milton Keynes, had a nice gig, and then ended up in London, which is where I'm at now. Had a great gig last night. While I was in London, I went walking around looking for the spot where Bob Dylan and Allen Ginsberg filmed the Subterranean Homesick Blues video. It was an alley. It took me two hours to find it, but I finally did, and it was well worth it. And that's just about everything I love about being on the road getting to do fun little things like that. But a lot of gigs coming up. Hopefully I will see you at some of them. Thank you to everybody who's been saying hey to me. It's just beautiful to meet people who listen to this show, especially when they're on the other side of the world. There's something neat about that, knowing this little bitty show could travel that far and you guys could enjoy it in your lives. So thank you, guys. friends this is otis gibbs and you're listening to thanks for giving a damn i'm sitting here in my hotel room in london this is a personal journal this is a bit of an experiment i like to say right up front that i haven't the slightest idea what i'm doing but i decided to do it anyway and this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter there's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever my guest this week is John Strom. John is a singer and a songwriter, and he's an entertainment attorney. You might know him from his bands, the Blake Babies, the Lemonheads, or Antenna, but you can follow John on Twitter, at John P. Strom. I'm really happy to have John back on the show. The first time we had him on, we did a lot of biography stuff, but he had a lot of really good road stories that we didn't get to. I thought it'd be fun to have him on, and he could tell some of those stories. And I went over to his office in Nashville. We sat down and uh, he went on for a while. He had some good insights into some stuff and he had some funny stories. And I think you're going to enjoy it. Here's John Strom. Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a good interview story. I'm happy to share. So I, you know that I grew up in, in punk rock and that was that was my whole thing for several years was hardcore and i went to see black flag a couple times back then around 84 85 and you know rollins was just the man i mean the the best band and you know i would have been scared to go up to rollins quite frankly even even if he'd been standing two feet away from me just because 
he was on that level. So fast forward to 1989, I was on the first Blake Babies tour. And for anyone who hasn't heard my old band, the Blake Babies, it was not a punk rock band. <laughs> it was a it was a pop band with uh, you know jangly guitars and a and a sort of a high voiced uh, female singer, Juliana Hatfield, and uh, we were definitely inspired by some punk rock, and we loved the replacements, but there was no hardcore component to it. It was pop music. <laughs> it was pop music that had no prayer of getting on the radio at that point, but it was it was pop through and through. So little did Frida, my bandmate and girlfriend at the time, and I know, but Juliana had been corresponding with Henry Rollins and sending letters back and forth for months. She sent him a copy of her first album and on cassette. <laughs> and because she loved him, she loved Rollins too. It's like her, her sort of point of entry for Rollins was different from mine. It was uh, you know, Rollins band and she loved his, his, uh, his books of poetry and, you know, I, I came up on a TV party, you know, so sort of different phases of Rollins. But she really, I, I guess it would be fair to say she had a crush on Rollins. And so she wrote him a fan letter and sent him a Blake Babies cassette. And he wrote back. And then she wrote him again. And he wrote back again. And then she sent him a letter saying, we're going on tour and we're playing the Club Lingerie in Hollywood, you know, on October 4th, 1989 or whatever. You know, please come to our show. We'll put you on the guest list. So then she didn't hear back from him at all. And she didn't say anything to us. But maybe a day before the show, or maybe the day of the show, she said, you know, I invited Henry Rollins to our show, and I really hope he comes out. And we're like, <laughs> wait a minute, what? So then she told us the whole backstory about the letters, and and then all of a sudden, Frida and I were really nervous because... Henry Rollins might be coming to our show. We're like, no, he's not going to come to our show. Why would he? You know, nobody knew who we were. So anyway, he came to our show, him and about 15 people. So, and, and also weirdly, it was like several of my high school friends, some random people that happened to be there. Harry Dean Stanton, (laughs) 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 whose band had played earlier, sitting at the bar uh, three of the members of the Pixies who were there making uh, Doolittle. So the, the, it was 15 people, but it was kind of an intense and, 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 and unusual and, and quite famous 15 people. And, but everyone was around the perimeter. It's just, you know, it's kind of a, a little club with a stage in the corner, you know, like, like a, just a typical nightclub. But Rollins walked in right as we were going on, and he walked right up to the front of the stage and he stood in front of the stage and crossed his arms <laughs> and just watched us. And Juliana was terrified. And it was the worst show we played on that tour by far because she could barely sing because she was so freaked out about Rollins being in front of us. Anyway, we get to the end of the show. He comes up, shakes all of our hands, says, that was fantastic. Would you like to stay at my house? <laughs> and we said yeah sure we don't have any we, you know, we're planning to get a motel six yeah we'll, we'll absolutely we'd love to stay at your house mr rollins <laughs> so then we pull the van up and he loads out pretty much all of our gear you know picks up the svt head carries <laughs> it out himself you know really heavy bass amp. rollins loaded your gear out yeah and then and then he had a, a little car and 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 juliana and 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 rollins were in the car and frida and i were in the van behind following and we're just like what are they talking about you know 
But we ended up staying at his house in Venice for three days. We had three days off, and we spent the entire time at his house. And he had nothing to do, apparently. So we were just there with him in Venice Beach at his house for three days. In fact, we left for a day because we had to go record, do some recording, and then we came back. And uh, <clears throat> Julian and Frida were too freaked out to really talk to him much, so it was basically just me talking to him. And the entire time, it was just him turning me on to cool music. He's like, have you heard Albert Eiler? No. Oh, oh my God, really? Never heard Albert Eiler? And then it's like, you know, two hours of playing everything. You're like, listen to this bit, come on, you know? And then he's like, have you heard Charles Manson's demos for SST? No, I didn't even know they existed. Oh, man, you know, it's just like one thing after another, this amazing music collection. That was the whole thing. And, and, and the weird thing was we, we felt like, you know, after about two days of being at Rollins' house, that we were like family. It was like the three of us and Rollins, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, living together in this little house in Venice Beach. And he was incredibly nice to us, incredibly warm and, and, and welcoming. But then we went to Denny's and there were these punk kids there and they were really excited to see Rollins at Denny's because, you know, Rollins writes a lot about going to Denny's in his books. You know, going to Denny's is a thing for Rollins. <laughs> so uh these kids at some point they appointed one of them to go up there and come up to our table and like say like you know it's really amazing to be walking to denny's and see see you here and and he just was really unpo- impolite to them just like yeah whatever you know and we're like come on henry you're the nicest guy that we know in los angeles but he did his niceness did not extend to these random strange punk rock strangers so it kind of the the buck stopped at, at the Blake babies in that situation. But really, one of the greatest hosts we had. Incredibly nice. Incredibly nice. And he sent me he he sent me uh, away with, with a bunch of amazing cassettes that I listened to for years. Like, he had some public enemy demos, and he, he made me a Lightning Hopkins mix, and, you know, just like an incredible, like, sort of stack of tapes that he made. It's like, I gotta tape this for you, you know? And, uh, yeah, incredible. So Mike Watt and I, Mike Firehose and the Blake Babies, shared a booking agent back in the, in the late 80s. <clears throat> and one of Mike's many things, he had a lot of things, you know, little things he'd say, little sayings or, or habits. And one of them is that because of the Minutemen, because the Minutemen, everything comes back to D. Boone and the Minutemen for Mike, um, which is, you know, the, the sort of most important thing ever. For him and many of us, you know, who <laughs> got to experience the Minutemen, he likes trios. He likes bands with three people. Power Troika, that's what he calls it. And so he liked the Blake Babies because we were a trio. Don and Sir Jr. because they were a trio. He liked trios. And um, so I think he, the agent stuck us on a couple dates, and he just, you know, he fell in love with, the band and and vowed to tickets out as much as he could which is a lot i think we did about blake babies did three or four tours and then my band after that antenna did a couple and he was very very generous and he would kind of naturally fall into this kind of mentor uh elder statesman role even though he was probably about 30 <laughs> at the time you know he seemed like a grown-up he had a beard you know and a deep voice um but we'd usually go to denny's after hours for uh, for a meal, and you know, he just kind of hold forth about the the the, the 
early punk rock days in Hollywood. And he had this thing where he'd talk about going to see the germs, you know, and he'd be like, we're back in Pedro, you know, we're playing Blue Oyster Cult. We learn how to do power chords, you know, and he's like, he's like, we, these guys are over there. They're playing all six strings. It's like, you don't play all six strings. Let's <laughs> play two strings at a time. They're doing all six. What's going on? You know, but, uh, you know, it's just always uh, great stories about, you know, going to see all those classic L.A. bands. But he also had a lot of rules about how you needed to conduct yourself to be, you know, appropriate as a band. like. For example, you never said anything about rehearsing. Your band didn't rehearse, you practice. Because actors rehearse, bands practice. And if you said rehearse, he would correct you. He'd say, nope, nope, actors rehearse, bands practice. Stuff like that. And um, couldn't smoke weed before the show, you know, stuff like that. <clears throat> so after the show, he'd smoke the mota, but not before, you know. And it, all the guys in Firehouse they have their own dugout, including him, and they'd be sneaking tokes, you know. But <laughs> the official rule was you couldn't smoke before the show. <laughs> but um, the other thing was you never miss a show under any circumstances. You do not miss a show. You show up and you play, and you take your money, and then you drive back to Pedro with, you know, you don't need air conditioning in your van because you can roll the window down, you know. So. It's like kind of a, you know, rugged individual is kind of, you know, we're, we're all in this, you know. For, so when we were on this one really long tour with them, it was kind of like the disaster tour for the Blake Babies. Everything went wrong. We were breaking up. Frida and I broke up as a couple. We were breaking up as a band. You know, just everything was going wrong. And when we were driving through the desert, I got the flu. Like the flu, the real flu, you know. And so... Driving across the desert, we get to we get to somewhere outside of LA. It may have been San Bernardino or something like that on a college campus. And it was our first night of a long run with Firehose. And when we got to town the night before, I had 104 fever. And I was just as sick as hell. You know, it was like lying in bed hallucinating, that kind of thing. <clears throat> I was um I was I wanted to cancel the show. Like, I can't play. And so I received word. You know, we didn't have cell phones, so I can't even remember how I received word. <laughs> Must have been the tour manager, you know, going to the payphone or whatever, uh, through the booking agent. I received the, wor the word from, from Watt that I was not allowed to cancel the show. I had to play. And he wasn't going to let that happen. Now, this was not the first show we'd done with them ever. We'd done a bunch of shows. So we had a relationship. You know, we were friends. He'd been incredibly generous with us, but it was like, you got to play. You're not canceling the show. So, so the tour manager at the time, it was two, we were brand new to having a tour manager. This is, you know, used to be just the three of us. He drove me to the show to have a conversation with, with Watt about whether or not we we're going to play the show. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was kind of holding court in this, in this sort of green room at this place, which was like in a, you know, in a college dormitory. <laughs> And he was sitting at the end of this long table. And um, I walked in and he's like, how are you feeling? I said, horrible. You know, looked bad and you know, could barely stand up. He's like, like yeah, he's like, you can play. And I said, I really don't want to play. He's like, he's like, listen, he's like one time I got a yeast infection and my nuts swelled up to the size of a grapefruit. <laughs> I played. 
He said, another time, I got the shits. I had to tie bandanas around the bottom of my pant leg to hold the shit in my pants when I was playing. <laughs> I played. You're playing. He's like, if you can stand up, you're playing. <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> and I played. But then Frida caught the same flu, and she literally couldn't play. So we had this show that exists somewhere on tape where, again, we were not allowed to cancel, even though Frida couldn't play. So George Hurley was appointed by Watt to be our drummer, even though he didn't know our song. <laughs> you know, George is kind of a, you know, this is the drummer from the Minutemen, George Hurley. And, you know, well, D Boone was, you know, this, this, uh, you know, this poet and this visionary and, 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 you know, Mike was his, you know, completely devoted, you know, sort of, uh, you know, other half. George was just kind of like a, like a dude, like a regular guy, you know, it's <laughs> like a guy that would want to, you know, get to, you know, getting a drinking a beer and seeing if there are any girls in the crowd, you know, that was him. So great drummer, but just a utterly regular dude. So he wasn't paying attention to what we were doing. He had no idea what our songs were. <laughs> so Watt was like, George, you're playing with the Blake babies tonight. So we're on stage and he's trying to follow us and I'm trying to give him cues, you know, and Juliana's up there singing it. He has no idea. So somewhere somewhere in the world, there's a video that pops up every now and again of Juliana and me playing a, an entire set in like San Luis Obispo with uh, with George Hurley on drums. So somebody out there find it and send it to me. I, I saw Firehose in the mid-90s, and I remember they had a, a lifestyle-size cardboard cutout of Madonna on stage. Yeah, he loved Madonna. He loved went her. through a big, long spiel about how she went to bat for him in some situation, but I don't remember what it was. It probably had to do with, you know, Chicone Youth. That was the band that, that Watt had with, with uh, the members of Sonic Youth where they covered Madonna songs. But I, I spent a, a couple days one time in Pedro with Watt and, and, and Ed Crawford, Ed from Ohio. And we were good enough friends, so I went to visit them in Pedro and, and actually stayed at Ed's place. And uh, I went to Watt's apartment, and I drove around all day with him in Pedro in his pickup truck. And he was listening to Madonna True Blue the entire time. I mean, this is not some kind of ironic sort of like, hey, Madonna's hilarious, you know, because there was not that thing back then where it was okay for punk rock people to like pop music. There was a divide, man. It was like you were a mainstream music person or you're a cool music person and Never the twain shall meet, except Mr. Watt, and I guess the members of Sonic Youth, who loved Madonna. He was into it. There was someone who, there were a few people who were trying to heckle him about that, and he stopped the entire show and was like, no, Madonna is a sister, and you're going to shut that shit up. <laughs> yeah. And everybody shut up. No, he, he's absolutely you know certain in his opinions, and, and it's been amazing. to. I mean, he was in the Stooges. You know, the guy's had an amazing career. It's, there's so few people in the world, other than Tom Waits and Mike Watt and a handful of others, Neil Young, who managed to have a career doing exactly what the fuck they want to do, you know, in music. It's like there's, there's a real beauty in that. I mean, the guy has, has always been, you know, outsider music. He's always done it his way, and, and there's always been a market for it. When he was signed to Columbia back in the early 90s, they couldn't drop him because they never gave him any money. He paid for his own records. 
<laughs> Genius. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He just made the record out of his pocket. He's like, I don't know. What do I need in advance? It's like, you can't drop a guy you don't give any money to. You know, it's like, where's the risk? You know, it's like, yeah, I guess we keep making Firehose records forever if we don't lose any money on it. That's not really our business model. <laughs> we, Jay Meccano, is more than just a. Oh yeah, well that's that that was a that was absolutely a, a philosophy of life. We jam Econo on all levels, which is a great learning experience for me. You know, it was really great to see that because, for one thing, if you, you know, it's silly to think about now, but if you're if you're a kid and suddenly your band is something that people care about and you go places and people are excited to see you, it's very easy to get you know, to start to get an ego about it, to start to think that what you do is actually important and actually matters. And he's the kind of guy, they're the kind of people who are going to make sure that you're, you know, that you're corrected in that notion as quickly <laughs> as possible. It's like, you're doing a job, you're showing up, you know, and, and if, you, if you're not bringing it and entertaining these people, then then you're then you're just, uh, you know, you're, you're useless, you know, and, and that's good, man, because... That guy has never gotten on stage and played a show where he didn't give a hundred percent. You know, it's like even with those bandanas tied around his legs, <laughs> shitting himself, he's still giving a hundred percent. So the, the Lemonheads, I, I was, you know, I was in a couple different phases of the Lemonheads, and I, I rejoined the band uh, in 1994 after a few years away. And during that time, they'd become very successful. And it was it was nice for me to be able to to, to to have a little bit of time to see that because I started playing music, you know, in high school in the early eighties and, and the biggest show I'd ever played before I joined the the Rockstar Lemonheads was maybe to a thousand people, you know. It was it wasn't a you know, touring in a van, sleeping on floors, always barely having enough money, you know, if even picking up jobs. So it was nice to have a little bit of time when, hey, we're in a bus and we got a full crew and, you know, we're playing to several thousand people a night, you know. So we're out in 94 and Hole and the Lemonheads had a history before I got back in the band. They toured together and, and they were close and, and, you know, there were rumors about the nature of Evan and Courtney's relationship. And, uh, you know, but that was during the period of time right after Kurt had committed suicide so it was a dark dark time and i think it was a dark time for her and uh so you know all my experiences you know kind of playing shows with the whole and and uh hanging around with her it was sort of fraught with this you know real kind of crazy weird energy at the time you know you know huge celebrity and you know and, and just you know you know unquestionably dark stuff but the time when I was actually on stage with Hole, because you might have seen that picture. <laughs> so we were at the Reading Festival in 94. And those festivals were really amazing back then because it didn't exist here yet. The Des Destination Festival wasn't a thing. <clears throat> you know, there was no Bonnaroo. There was the touring Lollapalooza, but that was a different vibe. But there was just such a sort of air of significance about those British festivals. And Hole were just making their, I, I think it, if it wasn't their first show with Melissa Oftermar on bass, you know, kind of their first return to form show after, after, you know, two months before Kurt had committed suicide. It was, it was, that, that was the vibe. So I was standing side stage and they were playing 
and it was the middle of the day. And at some point, Courtney <laughs> turned her head and looked over, and she's like, John Strom! Like, he's like, get me a cigarette! <laughs> <laughs> so I... You know, kind of turned around and I said, anybody got a cigarette? <laughs> I lit it and I walked it out to her and I handed it to her. And Holly Dando, Evan's uh, sister, um, snapped a photo of me <laughs> and Courtney, a cigarette on stage in front of all those people at Reading. We played later that night. But um, the, the one thing I will tell you about Courtney um, is that one time she had like a suite in London, you know, a beautiful hotel room, you know, probably a you know, a thousand pound a night kind of hotel room where she was staying. And she was there having some kind of cosmetic procedure, like getting, I don't know what it was, something with her hair or something. I can't even remember what. She was like having a cosmetic procedure. And, and Evan, Dando and I were there. And we were passing the guitar back and forth, playing songs, like entertaining her. And we were trying to see how many Rolling Stones songs we knew. And I know a lot of Rolling Stones songs. I mean, if you gave me a guitar right now, I could probably give you 30 back to back. And so <clears throat> for years after that, every time Courtney would see me, she'd be like, John Strom knows so many Rolling Stones songs. <laughs> that was the fact about me that she remembered. She'd be like, that guy can play so many Rolling Stones songs. I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to be known for something, that's decent. You know, it's better than like, that's the guy who puked on himself or, you know, whatever. It's like, yeah, man, I know a lot of Rolling Stones songs. I appreciate you chatting with me, man. My pleasure. It's good meeting with you again. Yeah. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John for inviting me over to his office in Nashville. You can follow John on Twitter at John P. Strom. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out with your little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.